Hi, this is Sherry Torres, co-author of Conversations Worth Having, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Sherry Torres. Sherry Torres is a PhD. She leads Collaborative by Design and is on a mission to give people simple communication practices that empower them to design organizations and communities that flourish. She's co-author of the book, Conversations Worth Having, Using Appreciative Inquiry to Fuel Productive and Meaningful Engagement. Her co-author is Jackie Stavros, who we featured in the previous episode. She's been featured in leading media sources, including Fast Company, Forbes, HR Magazine, Smart Brief, Training Industry, and Training Magazine. Her PhD is in collaborative learning from University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and she resides in Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, a question I like to start with, because I find that all high performers and people of achievement can look back on and find an answer to this. When you were growing up, who's one person who influenced or inspired you? Does it have to be just one person? Well, I know there are probably many. I just (laughs) want you to select one. (laughs) Um, The reason I say, does it have to be just one person, is that my mother and her sister really had a strong influence on me. My mother, because she not only believed in me, she really encouraged me to believe that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And she would push to make something happen for me if I really wanted to to have it happen and was willing to do the work for it and to persevere after I had started something to see it all the way through. The other side of that was my aunt, who just, she broadened my perspective to the disparities in the world and how that can-do attitude could could be bigger than just a narrow pathway. So what was your aunt's name? Aunt Connie. Connie. Mm -hmm. And you said that your mom pushed you to do something that you wanted to make happen. What was an example of that? Well, let's, here's an example of... When I was in high school and I went to interview for a job in Philadelphia for a summer position, and the job advertisement, as I looked at it, suggested that you had to be able to use a dictation machine in order to transcribe information. And I'd never used one of those before. And my mother said, well, let's just go down to one of the office business supply places. They'll show you how to use it. And you're smart enough and capable enough. You'll be able to do that. So on our way to the interview, we stopped in at a business shop. They showed me how to use it. And when I got to the interview, I was familiar enough with the technology that I was was able to do that and got the job. Now, let me just take a step back to highlight two things. First of all, what a wonderful message and way of endorsing your capabilities that your mom had to be able to say, oh, first of all, the vote of confidence, you're capable and smart enough to figure this out. And second of all, she went out of her way to stop at a store on the way to the interview. Hats yeah. off to your mom. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that- Second of all, for the millennials listening to this, a dictation machine is something that existed before (laughs) smartphones. 
Yes. <laughs> Everything could be accomplished just by clicking a few buttons on your phone. They actually had separate devices in order oh. to record voices and play them back. And transcribers weren't AI bots. Actually, people had to listen to it and type it up. Yes, thank goodness for new technology. <laughs> That's right. So what led you to the field of study where you got to, to learn about appreciative inquiry? I was actually working in outdoor experiential learning. So I was facilitating ropes courses, low ropes, high ropes, rock climbing, backpacking trips, etc. Did some outward bound work. And in after about five years of working in the field, a colleague and I designed and patented a portable low ropes course, which we could sell to schools and nonprofits so that they would be able to use these activities in an ongoing basis all year. And then we had to create a training so that they knew how to facilitate. And the two of us came from a strength-based approach where we would typically watch a group on an activity. And then when we debriefed, we would be asking them about points of success. How did they succeed? What did they do? What were small things that helped them move forward? When did leadership come forward, et cetera? When we went to try to train people to do that, they were really focused on seeing what people did wrong. Where did they fall off? And so their debriefing questions were all about, why did you keep having to start over? And we kept having to reframe, but it was implicit information for us. And trying to make it explicit for other people was very difficult, and we struggled with it. I don't think we were real successful. And then we were at a conference for experiential educators, and someone had just attended one of David Cooper writers, who's one of the original founders of Appreciative Inquiry. He just attended one of his trainings, and he was just on fire. And he did an open space session, inviting anybody who wanted to to come in and learn. And we sat in on the open space, and we were like, oh my goodness here's the, the model, here is the research behind the model, and here is the methodology. Because appreciative inquiry is about focusing on the strength, what's going well and why. And then we turned around, integrated that into our training and took our training from almost three days down to two days. And people were actually asking appreciative questions and leading the debriefs themselves by the second day of training. It was very exciting. So not only was it more effective and took less time, but you achieved the objectives by getting them to ask the questions to help people focus on their strengths. That's a double win. Yes, it was. And, and also to ask questions to focus on what is the thing you want them to learn or develop or to see? What insight is it you want? rather than getting them to correct the mistakes that they had made. So what's important about that, Sherry? Why do we want to have people think about what they did well, rather than correcting mistakes they made? If they keep falling off the ropes course, we really want them to stay on, and they might need to change some of their technique. Right. Yes. The real value, I think, in doing that is actually a neurophysiological value. The research in the area of positive psychology and neuroscience shows that when we're stressed or fearful, we actually lose our ability to think creatively, to connect with other people, 
and to access our higher order thinking because all the energy is going to protect us. It's the fight, freeze, or appease response that's going on. So when you're asking people what they did wrong or you're focusing on the problems, it shifts more energy into the protective defensive mechanism. And people just don't, they don't have access to what you need for them to actually have access to in order to be innovative, be good team players, to connect with other people and have empathy and compassion and access their emotional intelligence. And so by focusing on the strengths and focusing on where they did well and where they were successful, it just brought them into, from a neurophysiological perspective, it brought them into the prefrontal lobe and the neocortex which then gave them access to all sorts of creative possibilities and insights. And they were able to make links and would, they could move through these activities so much more quickly that way. And of course, the translation is, is they bring that back to work and create the kind of environment where that collaborative thinking, the creative thinking, the deep connections with others and building trust translates into better productivity and profitability for their companies, right? Exactly. And that's why you want to have those kinds of conversations in the workplace, a, a culture of conversations that actually prime people for their to have the best access to who they are is a win-win-win for the entire organization for customers, for organization, and for employees. So as someone who has a great deal of training experience in this area, what do you look for to tell whether a conversation is negative, neutral, or a positive conversation? And the positive conversation we're looking for is one that contains elements of appreciative inquiry. Yes. So the, the two elements are positive framing or being outcomes-focused focusing that conversation on where do we want to go? What do we want? What are our strengths? When are we at our best? As opposed to trying to fix problems. And the second is inquiry-based or asking generative questions. And I think if the listeners were to just take a moment and just think about the last time they had a negative conversation, they know what that feels like in their body. They know exactly what that's like. They may not have to think back very far. Right. <laughs> Equally, just like that, they can think back, hopefully even not far at all, to a great conversation, one that they thought was not only worth having, but it inspired them and they felt connected to the people in the conversation. And they know exactly how that feels in the body. And so it, it's not so much that we don't know what a conversation worth having looks, feels, and sounds like. The question really is, how do we intentionally make that happen every time, even when we are stressed, even when we have the most challenging situation that we have to deal with? How do we turn that into a conversation worth having? And I think that's where the outcomes-focused positive framing and the generative questions gives people tools to intentionally have conversations worth having. So appreciative inquiry has been around 30, 32 years. And we now have heard about it. It's been in articles. What would you say to a business manager listening who's had some familiarity with it, but not a lot of practical success? 
what would be one small thing you could suggest that they should know about it or test out that would make them take a renewed interest in using appreciative inquiry in their conversations? That's a great question, Bill. Appreciative inquiry for so many years has been equated with the methodology that gets used to bring appreciative inquiry into an organization. So there's something called a 4D or a 5D cycle, define, discover, dream, design, and either destiny or deploy. And so for probably 32 years or 31 years, actually until we wrote the book, Conversations Worth Having, appreciative when people heard appreciative inquiry, they heard oh, the 4D process or the 5D methodology. And that's a a great way to engage a whole system in doing a change effort or strategic planning. But it's very difficult to use that to access the power of appreciative inquiry on an everyday basis. The two things that people can do to bring that into their work as leaders, managers, or even from the bottom up in an organization is to change the, if necessary, change the tone and direction of a conversation towards out desired outcomes, desired by you and the other people that are in the conversation, or to frame it that way from the beginning. For example, if management is discussing low performance and, you know, how do we fix this? And they go do a root cause analysis to see why do we have low morale and low engagement, et cetera, that fosters a fight or flight neurophysiological response and suppresses energy. What appreciative inquiry would do in terms of framing that conversation would say, we still want to solve that problem. We still want to get somewhere. But instead of focusing on and studying low performance, what is it that we want And the simple flip of that is we want high performance. So let's go study high performance. And so you might ask some questions about, well, if we have high performance, what are going to be the telltale signs? How will we know? And, you know, we'd have high morale, high engagement, productivity would be up, customer satisfaction, retention. And now each one of those could be a frame for a conversation worth having. When have you felt most productive in the organization? What was going on for you? What was a value? And now you're, you've framed a conversation around something you want more of, and you begin asking generative questions. And that's the second practice. And a generative question is, is something that changes the way we think, and it creates images that compel us to move towards that future instead of some other future that we might not want. Sure. There are a lot of preferable futures, and we increase the probability of reaching the preferred future by putting more energy and attention on it. It kind of like goes back to the old adage, whatever you measure is what you'll manage. Yes. And whatever you talk about and ask questions about, that's what you're going to grow. Exactly. So in order to do this, it probably doesn't occur naturally to a lot of people listening. Given our society, given our entertainment culture, given the role models we've had, even though it's been around for over 30 years, it really hasn't permeated to be a default mode in many organizations, cultures, or subcultures or businesses. So 
what does someone need to do to prepare to have this be a daily part of your routine and a regular part of your culture? We really have two primary brain functions. And the first one, which is dominant, is to keep us safe. And so anything that threatens us or stresses us out is going to prime that part of our brain. The other part of our brain is primed for connection and curiosity or creativity. And so whenever we are not feeling threatened or when the threat is it's on the creative side or the connection side of the midpoint, we end up then being able to have those kind of conversations and they come naturally. So priming your brain for being in the prefrontal lobe and being in a space of connection with people, of curiosity, is the place to start. And when we are already there, we naturally have conversations worth having. We know how to do that. It's it's really not, what's not second nature is the asking generative questions. Let me jump in for a moment. When you're talking about curiosity, you're talking about questions to which you really don't know the answer. And I stress that because I think, Sherry, you and I have both met a lot of managers who think that curiosity means, I bet they haven't finish that work that I've assigned yet. And that's and that's the question that they're going to find the answer to. And they've already prejudged right. that they're not going to be happy with no matter yes. what the person they've delegated that work to do has completed. It's really being curious at a point of not knowing what that answer is. And it requires a degree of confidence and self-esteem as well as humility in order to ask that. Isn't that true? Is there anything you would add to that? I do. I think that is true. And I think one of the practices that anyone can do that will help bring that about is that when you're ready to jump or ask that kind of a question, or you become conscious of the fact that you've created a judgment or an assessment of someone, is to pause and take a deep breath. And in that pause, to recognize, I've made this jump, I've made this assessment, and to be able to Take that breath and get curious about, am I accurate with this? Am I absolutely certain that I'm accurate, that I'm right on my assumption? And most of the time, people have to answer, no, I'm not certain. And just that little bit of a window can begin to shift and create enough of a genuine curiosity because you're right. If it's not genuine curiosity, it's really not a generative question. It's a critical question. And do you recommend that people wait until they get to that part where they're sure that they are not 100% certain before they exhale to create a bit of a time pressure to come up with that answer and train themselves to get there faster? (laughs) Yes. And you can train yourself, but it requires practice. Because we've that practice getting yeah. through the other way, right? Where we come to questions with a prejudged answer. We have had lots of practice with that. We've been trained to do yeah, that. Trained actually. and reinforced and rewarded. Oh, yes. The, and the beauty of, of appreciative inquiry is when people begin to practice the generative questions and the positive framing, it is its own positive feedback loop. So very often if you go in you know, I've kind of made this assumption, but I'm going to check it out and I'm not sure that I'm right. And you check it out and you begin to recognize that 70, 80% of the time, you're not right. And so it that begins to train you to not 
jump to conclusions and to not second guess. So if you really care, I'm talking to the business leaders listening to this show and this episode, if you really care about getting it right, it really behooves you to ask the questions to find out. Because in your mind, you may be right, but the reality on the ground might be different. And the reality you need to change is what's actually real and on the ground and taking place in the experience of the people you're working with. Yes. And I would also recommend letting go, getting it right or wrong, and instead adopting this, how do I inspire the best from people that I'm working with? How do I be a catalyst for their greatest potential to show up? And judgment, critical conversations just eclipse that. So being able to frame the conversation in a way that allows whoever you're speaking with to step in and be their best. And it it also ends up creating much greater success in the organization as well, because you get so much more from every single employee. Your retention for your top talent goes up, engagement goes up, creativity commitment goes up, productivity goes up. Sherry, could we take this into an example of a company you've worked with? And what were they struggling with when they approached you? And what were some of the results that occurred through the interventions and introduction of AI? A really strong example that will also help those listening to this see how simple this can be. I was working with Alicia Patel, who was a senior vice president at a hospital in Western Massachusetts, and quality control for the whole hospital fell on her desk. And the hospital had merged with a couple of other clinics and hospitals over a three-year period. For shareholders, that was a great thing. For the staff, it had increased stress continuously, and it was showing up in patient satisfaction, which had been plummeting. And as you can imagine, for Alicia, this is her job. She kept going to the nurse managers and doing the traditional, typical, you need to do something about this. You need to fix this. This is a problem. Patient satisfaction has got to be reversed and going in the other direction. And you can imagine nurse managers, they got defensive. Um, And so what she heard quarter after quarter after quarter was, we are doing the best we can. Our nurses are working double shifts. People don't show up for work. There's just nothing more we can do. And this went on. And the more it went, the longer it went on, the more stressed she became. And of course, when she's stressed, she's got suppressed access to her own creativity or ability to connect to her nurse managers. So she went outside the hospital and looked for some sort of training, consulting, something that would help her help her to figure out how do I fix this? Because by that time, she'd even said, obviously, the nurses don't care, which was not true. But that's where she had gone. She stumbled onto a website that was advertising an appreciative inquiry training for healthcare providers. So she signed up immediately. And on the first day of her training, she realized she had been part of the problem. She'd been trying to go after this as if it were a problem to be solved. She was attacking, making her nurse managers defensive. So she vowed when she went back, she would apply appreciative inquiry. And she used a process called flipping. 
And flipping is a simple three-step process. First, to identify what is the issue or the problem you're trying to fix. And for her, the problem was low patient satisfaction. The second step is to flip it. And that's just flip it to the positive opposite. The positive opposite is high patient satisfaction. And the third step is what is it that we really want? What do I want? What's the outcome we're looking for? If we have high patient satisfaction scores, what does that mean? And she came to a point where she said, that would mean that we have really high quality care and patients feel satisfied, nurtured, and looked after. So she went to her next nurse manager's meeting and asked the question, she said, do you all have patients that feel like they're getting high quality care and that they are being well taken care of? And the nurses she kind of sheepishly shook their heads, yes. And she apologized to them. She said, I'm so sorry for what I've been yelling at you for. I want you to look into what are you doing? What are the nurses doing for those patients that are really happy with the care that they're getting? And please come back to the next management meeting. And I want each one of you to have at least one story to share. And when she got back into that next meeting, she said she walked in the door And it was buzzing with everybody talking to each other, which she hadn't seen in over two years. Sat down at the table and they went around the circle. Everybody not only had one story, many of them had several of stories of satisfied patients. They'd talked to patients themselves. They'd talked to their nurses about what was working. They'd already started implementing changes. And when they left the meeting, she said, I sat there just kind of dumbstruck and in awe at how easy that had been. She said, we had over 30 different suggestions from all of the nurse managers of what they were doing already and what people could do. And then the next quarter, when the, when the patient satisfaction stores, scores came out, they were up on every single floor. And there was one unit that had 100% patient satisfaction. And she went on to bring the training into the hospital itself and all of the nurses, administrators, and a handful of physicians that would attend actually went through training and it changed everything in the hospital. Because when you change the focus, it changes where people are putting their energies, doesn't it? Absolutely. When you focus on what's working and what we want, your own physical energy increases. So you have so much more to bring to the work itself. And it, the work then becomes its own reward. So why is it, do you think, that people use questions that talk about what you're not doing? So for instance, I'm imagining a nurse who wasn't able to get a positive response in an interaction with a patient. And I can imagine the nurse saying to himself or herself saying, gosh, I wish I had just been a little bit more patient, but I have so much work to do. There's not time to do as much as I'd like to. Why is it that they focus on what shortcomings they have in situations like that where they're looking to bring about a better situation, yet the circumstances are really, really tough to overcome? And I think this is two things. One, this is where our natural physiology comes into play. That's what we're wired to do because we're wired to, to protect ourselves. And so we are wired to see the negative first and to go there. and. 
as problem solvers, because we've all been trained how to problem solve, we've been trained to follow that. What's wrong? What's not working? How do we fix it? Which face doesn't fit even from the time we're really little we're we are we're trained to do that and so not beating up on ourselves if that's our first go-to to let that reaction happen and then to say all right when I have had time to be with patients and take the time what's been of value what helped that happen What did I value about myself? What did I value about my colleagues? Or when I've been really busy and it seemed like there was no time for anything, and yet I was still patient with my patients, what was going on for me? And so you begin to access your own resources, your own resilience, your own capacity for engaging the way you want to, even in the most stressful times. Does that make sense? It sure does. And it really translates into much broader levels of activity. It could be a manager who's just had a one-on-one with one of your direct reports. And it helps to do it not just in retrospective, but to do it in advance of these meetings and situations where you expect it to be stressful or difficult. And think, in advance, what have been times when I've been able to do this successfully? What are some instances where I've really risen to the occasion? What do I need to focus on now to have the energy to give my complete attention to the situation? Isn't that true? Because it yeah. makes so much more of a difference to do it in advance. Oh, it does. And to ask yourself the question, if this meeting goes really well and we get the outcome we're looking for, what will have happened? What, 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 what will we have talked about? What questions might I ask to help us move towards that? Because we move in the direction of the images we're carrying. So being able to see the successful meeting, being able to see a difficult conversation going through in a way where everybody feels cared for and nurtured and learning comes out of it. If you can see it, you can make it happen. Sure. What about an example where you've been in a relationship with someone, a work relationship, and you were delivering something, or maybe you were collaborating on something? Do you have an example that you were thinking about that maybe you're headed down a way and you're able to use AI, appreciative inquiry, to focus on it in a different way? I I had sent some information to a, a colleague. I was very excited about the information. I had kind of moved forward on something and was sharing information specifically about an upcoming event that we were going to. And my colleague, Susan, responded to me in a way that took me aback. I was stunned at her reaction, which was very defensive. And I kept, I went back to my email looking at what what did I say and what did I do? And, and, and so I backed up and I did what we call a do-over, which is before I jumped back to defend myself to her in an email, which was, which was, of course, my first reaction, I stopped and I looked at the email and then I looked at, okay, what are the facts and what might I have made up? And that I somehow communicated things that I was making up or assumptions that I was making. I had communicated those in my email and I had not checked them out. And so by doing that and going back to say, okay, these is because I didn't check out these assumptions, I had kind of just. Um, Sherry? Yes. What's an example of an assumption that you had glossed over? I made an assumption that she was 
too busy to have read all the material. I made an assumption that she had not had an opportunity to work on thinking about the presentation yet because she was busy doing something else and made the assumption that it would be seen as a benefit if I went ahead and just did the presentation and then we could make changes according to um, her suggestions and thoughts. And by not checking that out up front, in hindsight, what, what I would have done was ask those questions up front rather than just making assumptions. Mm. Because that makes a big difference to say to someone, well, you probably haven't had time to do your part, so here I've done it. And that doesn't really generate the kind of working relationship that you're after. No. And it was my, you probably haven't had a chance was unspoken, but ah. the, but the energy was still there, right? Mm-hmm. And so by going back and saying, I made these assumptions, I did not even ask you. And I, you know, I apologize for that. If I were doing it over, here's what I would have done. And her response was, if you'd done all those things ahead of time, this would have been perfectly fine. And so it was just that, that little bit. Yeah. And sometimes it's just helpful to pick up the phone rather than risk sending another email where you're missing things like that. Yes, which is, was also her suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes these things are really simple. You get into an argument with something or, and let me give you an example that's a non-work example. Sure. It's a very short one. And it's, it's often the, the hardest place to implement this is with a partner. And so my husband and I were taking a walk one day, walking the dog, and he was sharing with me a story of some advice he had given to a younger person in our community that he does a lot of work with, and he's a kind of a mentor to him. And he, he gave him some advice that my whole being wanted to say, what? How could you have given him that advice? And inside my head was pause, take a deep breath here, Sherry, and get curious instead of jumping on that, because I would have taken it down a rabbit hole. You know, his story had already happened. He was just sharing it with me. And it was a new practice for me to not jump and ask, why did you share that? And instead, ask, so how did that go? And what happened because of that, so that that I helped unfold the story instead of judge him. And it made a huge difference for both in our relationship, but also in my awareness of how often I stop listening as soon as something doesn't align with my own thinking instead of getting curious. And what was probably true for you, as well as true for anyone who catches himself with that, that's a moment when you've grown. It's a moment when your awareness has expanded and your capabilities have increased. Yeah. So really wrote the book for myself. <laughs> and you've been able to chronicle some of the the practices that make conversations worth having. Yeah. Sure. One of the things I really like, there are many things I like, but one of the things I want to call attention to in the book is the ratios of positive to negative, inquiry versus advocacy, and self versus other. Do you recall that on page 116? Oh, I absolutely do. Can you talk us through the differences in the ratios of high-performance teams versus low-performance teams and why that makes a difference? Sure. It's the wait a second, let me back up. It's important for people listening to recognize that appreciative inquiry isn't saying you can't ever be critical, you can't ever be negative, you can't ever have a conversation 
where you look to give people direct feedback about behaviors or actions they need to stop, even if it means delaying. What we need to do is make sure that the balances are correct in order to create and unleash this type of chemistry and productivity and creativity in organizations. And Sherry, what does the research say in this area? So it it actually, and this was a surprising outcome in the research, that high-performing teams equally advocate and ask questions of one another, which means that they are stating their own opinion and they're advocating for what they think, but they're also saying to the other person, so why do you think that? Why, why do you like option A better, better than option B? They're really inquiring. They're not holding on to their own view so tightly. And the other is the type of talk, which is self versus other. And that's me talking about myself versus my talking about other people and what other, how other people are helping. And so when those are balanced on a one-to-one basis, both the inquiry advocacy and self versus other, you can end up with a high-performance team. In low-performance teams, people tend to talk about just themselves, and they tend to do a great deal more advocating for their own opinion and not really asking about others. The big uh, insight came from the positive-to-negative ratio, where high-performance teams have six positives to every one negative in order to be high-performing teams. And the positive conversations are those that, that are conversations worth having. They're, they're focused on where do we want to go? How are we going to get there? What do we already know? What are the strengths that we're bringing to that? What are some possibilities? How are you contributing? Those are positive conversations versus negative conversations, which focus on the problems, blame, shame. And those in low-performance teams are a ratio of a 1 to 20 one positive to every 20 negative. And what these results tie into is the the research just in positivity from Barbara Fredrickson is that if we in our organizations manage to have around a 70 to 80% positivity ratio, when we have those critical conversations, when people go negative, they don't take it personally and they're able to roll with it and move forward and it doesn't stop performance. It doesn't stop the connection. Um, but it's when it's the other way around. When 80% is negative, it just crushes the ability of, of an organization and a team to be very effective. If you were to challenge listeners to listen for the positive to negative ratio over the course of an hour, not even a day, not even a week, but just the course of an hour, how would you frame it so that they could take this on and experiment with it for themselves in their own organizations? I would suggest that just for an hour to look for what's going right, to look for what their colleagues are doing well and to comment on it when they see something that a colleague is doing that is contributing or they see a strength. That probably the biggest thing in the research that we've done, we've discovered people tend to be a little more positive with their external conversations. It's the internal conversations where they tend to be far more negative. So don't just monitor your conversations or your assessment or your judgment of other people outside of yourself. It's also, what am I saying to myself? 
how am I judging myself? And what I would suggest is that short little exercise will be easy to do if you're surrounded with people that you enjoy working with. And the place it will produce the greatest amount of growth is to spend some time with the people that trigger you, that you're, you have a great deal of judgment around, and to look at what value do they add when they're at their best. What's going on? What are they doing? What am I doing with them when we work well together? And then that will begin to shift. And I would suggest that that's not just a conversation worth having. It's a challenge worth pursuing because imagine proving yourself right in that instance, that you're capable of noticing, you're capable of commenting, you're capable of externalizing and and creating that type of connection with your colleagues. Yes. And it shifts the way you feel inside yourself as well. So when you do that, check in with yourself to see, usually people feel lighter, brighter, they're breathing more deeply, they're more relaxed, and suddenly you have more access to your potential as well. Well, Sherry, this has been such a delight. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best and talking about conversations worth having. I'm going to recap some of the points that we talked about, starting with thinking about your mother and Aunt Connie, who gave you that kind of belief in yourself and actively looked to support you. I'm thinking of example with your mother, stopping at the office supply store en route to a job interview. And your aunt giving you that broader perspective, so you got to think about the larger world, about your experience with AI and how it transformed that outdoor course experience that you had developed. The positive psychology and neuroscience, that having these conversations with yourself and with others actually brings about physiological changes that can be measured. And when you're in that state, you have access to greater connectivity and problem-solving ability and connecting with others. Things that we all want, but we often are trained and the role models we have are completely backwards about how to get there. We talked about how AI has been around for three decades, and what really needs to happen is to have conscious application of it, and that can happen so quickly and so easily by saying, look, it just is a matter of how do I have more curious and generative conversations and questions sprinkled throughout my day. And then we just wrapped up with some of the positive examples of doing that by increasing the ratios within your organization. So for all these reasons and so many more, I just want to thank you so much, Sherry Torres, for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Now, before we say goodbye for now, tell us where we can find out more about you and your work online. So conversationsworthhaving.today is the book website, and you can download a free conversation toolkit and the introduction and the preface to the book you can also download for free. And then my business website is sherrytorres.com. Well, we're going to link to that as well as all of the interesting people and books that we've mentioned during this episode in the show notes. So Sherry, once again, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Bill. Been a conversation worth having. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. 
When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.